China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And my guest for this episode is Jessica Teets, an Associate Professor of Political Science at Middlebury College. Today we'll be discussing fragmented authoritarianism and the evolving nature of governance in the Xi Jinping era. Jessica, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking a intellectual biography question of how you came to focus your academic work on this issue of governance and policy making in China. And as a follow up, what are the questions, the big so what's the big how the heck is this possible questions that are either driving your current research or that you're thinking about in the future? I think that I came to this area of research mostly from personal experience, which is probably true for all of us. My parents were, you know, children of the 60s, and so they always believed that whenever there's a problem in your community, you have people power, right? You write petitions, you have a protest, you gather people together, and that's the way that everyday citizens can impact what's happening in their communities and maybe even more broadly. And so what's really interesting for me to understand is does that process work in authoritarian regimes too where the government's even more insulated and even further away from regular citizens so if you're a regular citizen in China and there's a problem in your community do you have any way to impact that and so i started my research mostly looking at civil society and associations and ways that citizens could join together to try to influence the government to change policy and that sort of led me then to try to understand more about local governance In China, just like the United States and these big federal systems, local government is really, really important for everybody's day-to-day life. And so whatever impact citizens can have with local government is really important. And so that's what I'm trying to understand. Looking forward, do you have any big outsized questions, the kind of how the heck is this possible as you think about your future research that still linger for you? The question that I asked with my civil society research was why in the world you had this really strong authoritarian state that not only let civil society groups form but in some cases helped them and gave them money and other resources. And that was sort of this really big puzzle. And I think the big question that that has led me to is also trying to understand how a large country like China enforces its will and its policies all the way throughout the country in an even way. What does that process look like? How do you incentivize that type of decision making? Is it good to have that done in the same way everywhere or do you want flexibility and discretion in that system? So that's sort of the big question I'm trying to figure out, you know, just the nature of governance, so a small question. I should have added at the top that China Quarterly was just arranging 12 of its most influential articles over 60-year publication history and your 2013 article on let many civil societies bloom the rise of consultative authoritarianism in China was one of those 12 so just how influential your work has been we're going to spend most of our conversation today thinking about how governance structure policy making has changed or evolved or some would say devolved in terms of quality under the administration of Xi Jinping since 2012 but it may be helpful to lay a foundation here of how you and your colleagues have been conceptualizing and thinking about governance in what we call the post Mao era so thinking about the mid to late 1970s when the economic reforms began 
through, let's say, 2012, before Xi Jinping came to power. Can you just level set for us? How were folks thinking about governance? What were some of the prominent heuristics or frameworks for scholars trying to make sense of this? I think that's part of why this is actually such a fascinating area is that we really didn't have a good understanding about local governance or how decisions moved from Beijing out to other parts of the country in the 80s and 90s. It was sort of this black box. We knew that the party was important. We knew that there were different breakdowns of government, right, going from the province to the prefecture or the municipality to the county. We knew there were village governments. But the understanding of how each level interacted with the level above it, where the responsibilities were, who was supposed to be doing certain type of work, all of that was really unclear. And so you ended up with people trying to understand policymaking just by looking at what was coming out of Beijing. So whatever the regulations or policies were, that was then assumed that that is what is going to happen across China. So if it didn't happen, we assumed that there was a capacity issue, like the local government just couldn't do it for some reason. And I think this started to get really complicated as more and more people started being able to do field work in China, and they realized that it wasn't simply that the policies were cascading evenly out of Beijing throughout the entire country, and that only low-capacity places weren't adopting these policies. Instead, they started to see this process where there was a lot more bargaining and pushback, where it wasn't just that the central level were the ones who came up with the policies, local levels implemented, but there was a lot more of a dynamic interaction going on there. And so I think that, you know, in the mid-1990s, we started to get more of a grasp on what that governance model looked like. And I think it surprised a lot of scholars in seeing how fragmented it was. That's a very artful segue to my next question, which is one of the dominant frameworks or heuristics for thinking about governance in the reform era was this idea of fragmented authoritarianism. This came to rise in the late 1980s, I think 1988 exactly, with a book by Mike Oxenberg and Ken Lieberthal, Policymaking in China. And I just pulled out a quote from actually about halfway through the book, but really captures this well, where they say, what on paper appears to be a unified hierarchical chain of commands turns out in reality to be divided, segmented, and stratified. Indeed, the, and they put this in emphasis, fragmentation of authority is a core dimension of the Chinese system. Two decades later, in 2009, Andy Murtha wrote a paper on fragmented authoritarianism 2.0. And then, so this is now well into the Hu Jintao administration, says that the fragmented authoritarianism framework has remained the most durable heuristic through which to study Chinese politics. I noticed that the use of the word durable as opposed to the most accurate or effective, maybe a hint there about some of the limitations that are still felt by scholars. But the name is evocative. And I think in the name itself, we can understand a bit about what the concept is saying, especially that quote I read. But I wondered if you could unpack with a bit more sophistication, what is fragmented authoritarianism and why, to get to Andy's point, why has this been so durable? I think that the framework is a really good framework because it doesn't make the fragmentation an accident. It highlights it as the key part of the system. So the fragmentation is, is not an accident. It's not happening as an unintended consequence of the system. It's actually part of the system. 
So what you're seeing is that governance is fragmented across different ministries or policy areas. So if you're looking at something like water quality, instead of having one ministry that might be responsible for that, you're actually looking at at least three or four that have some responsibility in that area. So these are all the same level of government. But then the fragmentation also happens down throughout the system so that at each level of government, let's say at the provincial level, you're going to then have different departments that are functioning at the provincial level that also have overlapping authority over these policy areas. So that fragmentation, you know, who is responsible for something, who has the authority to act, is not only across the system, but it's also down through all the provinces and all the different layers of government. And what that does, that fragmentation, is that it creates the inability for any one actor to build up too much power in the system. So, for example, if you look at somebody like Sheena Greeton's great work on understanding how secret police and militaries are built in different countries, the more fragmentation you have in the military, the less likely it is that they can coordinate to then oppose the central authority. So we see the same system in place in China, which is fragmented authority outside of the central government. And that then keeps the lower level governments focused more on dealing with their own policy areas and not necessarily exercising broader authority. What this has led to is it's led to a lot of discretion at the local level, and this discretion is good and bad. So one of the things I study is policy innovation or policy experimentation. And what always amazes me is when I'm doing field work at the local level in China to see, you know, somebody at the county level or the township level who is just seeing citizens. They're coming into their office, they're presenting them with their problem, and they're resolving these issues. They're not necessarily following rules exactly. They're just sort of adjudicating each problem as it appears. That type of government is really flexible, it's really adaptive, but it's not so good at being ruled by law where it's following certain rules and everybody is treated the same. So the discretion in the system, I think, is key to it being so adaptive over all these decades of change, sociopolitical change. But I also think that it leads to problems that we see like policy implementation gaps where laws that are passed at the central level are not implemented at the local level, like around environmental protection. And then also bad outcomes like corruption. So the system, I think, in some ways is really good, but in a lot of ways, it also creates these problems. And I think that in this framework, these problems are part of what I think Xi Jinping's governance reforms are trying to address. For anyone who's lived or spent a long time in China, the slack in the system is pretty evident. You know, if you see traffic accidents, oftentimes those are adjudicated right there on the spot with a cop helping on the spot bargaining or negotiation, which of course is unthinkable here in the United States. A question I had hearing you talk is why the word fragmented as opposed to other words we could use to explain the system like decentralized or discretionary authoritarianism. So just at a conceptual level, help me understand why this is a fragmentation of authority rather than a decentralization of authority. I think they use that term because they're trying to get at the idea that it's not clear. So if something is decentralized, you might be assigning certain responsibilities to one entity versus another, but it's a clear authority. 
With this fragmentation, there's actually overlapping authority. So if you want to say, okay, you know, I'm in Hangzhou and who's responsible for clean water quality in Hangzhou? There isn't a clear answer. Even the actors who are involved in water quality don't know the real answer to that. Because the answer is, is they're all sort of responsible for it, but it's not clear whose authority it is or what parts of those policy decisions are any one actor's responsibility. And so that fragmentation then produces this sort of bargaining process. So you might have somebody from one ministry who decides they want to tackle this issue, and they're going to try to actually take more authority than maybe previously they thought they had. And then it's up to those other agencies to either push back or say, sure, this is your area, we'll give it to you. As a way of contextualizing this, how common is this fragmented authoritarianism in other authoritarian systems? And I guess as a follow-on, do we see this also at play in other Leninist one-party states prior or some of the few current ones? That exact term isn't used, so there isn't a perfect, I guess, sort of an apples-to-apples comparison. Usually in the comparative literature, they talk more about this decentralized governance model. But inside of those models, they would talk then about what exactly is decentralized. Is it authority? Are resources decentralized? So what exactly is decentralized and to what level? But I think that those echoes, even though it's not exactly the same terminology, I think that the heart of this problem is something that you see in all the literature about decentralization. So, for example, if you wanted to look at Brazil, you know, another system that has local level governments that have a fair amount of responsibility, even if you look at policy areas like Bolsa Famia, their conditional cash transfer program, What you see is that it's unclear at each level who exactly is responsible for which behaviors or which tasks. And that leads to a lot of opportunities for corruption or malfeasance. But it also sometimes leads to just there being unclear authority and so people not necessarily being able to improve upon the system or fix problems because it's not clear the problem is in fact theirs. So I think what you've started to see after the 1990s and this big push for decentralized governance by the World Bank and other entities is you've actually seen, I think, push back. And a lot of countries that were pursuing more decentralized models of governance are now pursuing more centralized models of governance. This is really prominent when you look at environmental policies. The trend or the direction is much more around centralized policy rather than decentralized governance. Another very artful transition, speaking of centralization, to really what I want to spend the bulk of time talking about, which is, and thank you, that was a really helpful elucidation on fragmented authoritarianism, but I think also how you and your colleagues have been looking at governance throughout the reform and opening period. Just for framing and context, I think most of us, if you were to ask us over a dinner table what has typified the rule of Xi Jinping, I think the word centralization would certainly be one of the first adjectives that we would turn to. And indeed, I think centralization, the increasing of the power of the Communist Party, the movement of autonomy sort of over to the party from the government and up towards the center. And of course, any article on this will include stories about new leading small groups and then the new leading small groups being upgraded to commissions, increased ideological governance and oversight from Xi Jinping, the role of the Discipline Inspection Commission, CCDI, all of that would seem to indicate that the fragmented or the decentralized nature of some of this secret sauce, which has worked well for the party over three of the last four decades, has, mixed my metaphors, evaporated or is spoiled. 
I guess the question I want to ask you is, what to you as a practitioner and a careful observer, do those adjectives fit for you as well when you think about she's model and practice of governance? And if not, or if I've turned the volume up to 11 on any of these when it should be at eight, what to you are the most notable features of this period starting in 2012? You know, importantly, what are the big departures that you see and what are the elements which have simply transitioned over from, let's say, the who era to the she era? That's a a really good question because I do think that Xi Jinping, at least his rhetoric, is a definite departure from Hu Jintao and decades before. And then the empirical part of that is how much does actual practice differ from those earlier periods? You know, Xi Jinping is not a personal friend of mine, so he doesn't share his thinking with me. But based on my understanding of how he interprets governance in China, I think that when he looks at this model of fragmented authoritarianism, he looks at it more from the lens of top-level design or technocratic government, maybe with like Singapore as a really good exemplar of what this governance looks like. And from his perspective, then, he sees the fact that policies that are created in Beijing are not necessarily implemented well or quickly or sometimes even at all throughout all local governments in China. I think he sees that as a failing of the system. So all of those good things that we talked about, the discretion, the adaptability, the ability to solve problems at the local level... I don't think he sees those as strengths of the system. I think he's really looking more at the weaknesses of that system, which is that if you come up with a really great law, right, like an environmental law, nobody outside of Beijing adopts it. You can have the best environmental laws in the world, but the worst environmental performance. So those policy implementation gaps, I think he sees as a really severe negative consequence of this model. And then also corruption, malfeasance, you know, the ability of people to use their discretion for their own benefit. So what I find interesting about this is, hasn't every leader of really any political entity had the same diagnosis that they are frustrated by the unwillingness or inability of subordinates to implement their policies? Of course, there's the old saying of the sky is high, the emperor is far away, which indicates that this has been a frustration for dynastic leaders for a very long time. But to deorientalize it, I would imagine President Obama or Bush or any other political leader has been frustrated by the inability of the center to get the local level to do what it wants. So why is this a feature of the Xi administration, even in just putting his finger so firmly on this diagnosis and stamping his foot? Did Hu Jintao not see this as a problem? Why isn't this a universal feature? Why does this seem to be such a core element of Xi? And I realize not asking for pop psychology, but is there (laughs) an explanation here about why he himself seems to have found this such a pressing issue. I think that even though it might seem like an obvious answer that central governments always want local governments to exactly implement their policies, that might seem like a thing that is universal. But in actuality, there are a lot of benefits to fragmentation. So part of it is that the governments in the localities are much in a much weaker position, even if they're wealthy, powerful provinces. Those local leaders, because governance is so fragmented, they don't really ever get a strong base of power, nothing compared to what you see at the central level. So you see that power, you sort of have coalitions and people competing against each other at the local level, which sort of distracts their attention from taking any sort of stronger position against the central government. So there's implications for power sharing, where fragmentation actually helps with power sharing. Also, and we've seen a lot of research about legitimacy and what people think about local government versus central government or the state versus the party. 
keeping these entities divided actually allows for blame attribution in ways that are really good in a system where there's a lot of change and a lot of things going wrong. So you can have a system in China where when we do opinion surveys, citizens say, I trust the central government, but I really distrust the local government. In a unified system where you can't attribute blame to different entities, you wouldn't be able to have that. There would be no release valves in that system. So there are a lot of reasons why fragmentation is something that past leaders complained about, but actually also found helpful and beneficial. So there were a lot of reasons where they might want to decide to keep certain amounts of fragmentation. And the way that they would get around that is if they had a policy objective that they felt really strongly about, they would use campaign style governance. They would use a campaign in order to make sure that everybody was in lockstep. But then the rest of the time, they would allow decentralization and that fragmentation that was so beneficial for their governance. We were talking before about what has been the impetus behind Xi diagnosing these problems. You mentioned some of it at the end, you know, corruption. It seems to me Xi Jinping is very future oriented, talks a lot about the struggles that China will be facing, has set some of these in many ways like previous leaders. But I think Xi Jinping has really leaned into the idea of these benchmarks of development and where China needs to be and has accelerated some of the investments in the big bet technologies, which they hope are going to help them crawl out of some of these productivity and demographic holes. Putting some of these reorganizations or centralizations or restructurings of the governance model, what do you think are some of the more technocratic reasons behind them doing these? Besides, again, give maybe an unfair description of what I think the general consensus is, is she is doing this because he's power mad and is looking to centralize his position and or just ensure that the party survives. Do you see other more technocratic reasons here about problems that they're more sort of workaday problems that the party is trying to fix by rejigging the governance model? Absolutely. And of course, I think that there are really great benefits to centralization for controlling other elites in the party. So those are definitely there. But I actually think that this model has a lot more to do with governance in China than it does just in controlling other elites. Because the systems that were in place before the target management system and the way that people were promoted through different ranks, those systems seemed to be working fairly well for managing elite conflict and making sure that there was elite cohesion around the party. I think that actually Xi Jinping's centralization is much more about creating a strong bureaucracy. What he's concerned about is that the problems with fragmented authoritarianism, the policy implementation gaps, the corruption and lack of trust that local citizens have in government, the inefficiencies and waste that we see with government investment. I think that when he's looking at the challenges that are facing China growing out of the middle income gap or trying to jump ahead into AI or other really high-tech sectors, what he's recognizing is that the old model won't get them there. They have to do things differently. And that those problems of fragmented authoritarianism are going to make it take much longer and cost much more to get to the same goal. And I think he has a really strong belief in technocratic governance, in elite governance, this sort of top-level design. That, you know, if you take a whole bunch of technocrats and engineers and you have all that talent grouped together at the central level, they're going to come up with the answer. And then governance is simply implementing that answer. So I think that's the way that he views governance. And that's why I think that the focus that he has, of course, it, it does give him more political control. And that's probably a great thing. But I think really it's about getting rid of fragmented authoritarianism and creating this new bureaucracy that's a lot closer to Weber's iron cage. So we don't have discretion and we don't have local leaders doing whatever they want. 
but they're taking these great policies designed in Beijing and they're implementing them faithfully. You're three for three on segues. This is great. But I wanted to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of a cadre in Randomville, China. Let's pretend this cadre has been used to, at the local level, wide berths, large amounts of discretion, maybe some good rent-seeking and corruption opportunities. They're interested in their local community, but it's also been a nice, decent, cushy gig. She comes to power. There's rumblings up in Beijing that there's going to be, you know, sort of more control. They start to see in 2013, 2014, some more sort of ideological mass line campaigns. They see CCDI now under Wang Qistan. I want to ask if you can help put us, the listeners and myself, in the shoes of a cadre now in 2019, 2020. What does life feel like for me? What does the incentive structure feel like for me? How might my behavior to survive and stay in this office, how might my behavior be changing now? This is actually, I think, the most exciting part of studying China right now is that we are finally getting more information about exactly these local government officials. You know, in the past, we've had more understanding about people at the central level, what they think, what their opinions are. Sometimes they even write op-eds, not under their own names, but we know who writes them. And we get to sort of see what their thinking is. In the past, we haven't had a lot of information, though, about local government officials. And so we've had to sort of guess at what their incentives are and how they understand their position. And a lot of the research that I've been doing over the last few years has been surveying local government officials, which is challenging because they're a really sensitive population right now. But to actually do large-scale surveys where we try to figure out what they think about their jobs, what sort of pressures they feel, what sort of incentives they see. And one of the biggest changes that we're seeing is that they still are reporting that there's a lot of fragmentation in the system. So they still are unclear about their authority or exactly what they're supposed to be doing. At the same time that there's been a digitization of governance, so increasingly they're being given quantifiable targets. So all of their targets are being quantified and the metrics for those targets are being collected. So they're not reporting their progress. Like if you want to think about something like air quality, air quality monitors that are put up around cities are taking constant readings and sending that information directly to databases in the Ministry of Environment and Ecology. So it's no longer local government reporting about what they're doing. Instead, their work, their performance is being measured through digital means. So they are increasingly under the microscope with meeting quantifiable targets, but at the same time, they don't necessarily have a clear understanding of what their authority is or what their discretion is. And so they're reporting to us in their surveys that they're feeling under increasing stress and uncertainty. They're using terms like they simply feel that they can't take it anymore. So we're starting to see the highest number of voluntary resignations from local government that we've ever seen in the system. But also one of the questions that we ask in our survey is, would you like your child to also be a local government official? And it used to be that people would always say, yes, this was a great career, right? Like you had career security. And so most people would say yes, that they would like their children to be local government officials. Now we're seeing the lowest yes response to that question that we've ever seen. So the majority on the scale of one to five, you know, our average measure is coming out at like 1.2. So most people are saying, no, you know, I don't want my child to be a local government official. Can I ask just a two finger on that? Is that necessarily a reflection that it's a bad job or is that a reflection of their other opportunities out there? 
it could still be that the satisfaction level is the same in that position, but now they understand their kid could go abroad. They could. So is there anything further clarifying that? Yes. So as good social science researchers, we, of course, tried to you know pull apart the intentionality behind that question. And so we gave them a number of experiments to see what they would be most likely to resign over. So we gave them a couple of career opportunities where they could go into the private sector or a state-owned enterprise and make more money. And so we made the incentive pretty clear, you're going to earn more money. But then we also gave them a couple of options about staying in their positions and having different responsibilities. And basically what we were able to see when we tried to drill down into why they didn't want their children to become local government officials is that it's not so much that they're seeing more opportunity elsewhere. It seems that what they're saying is that the stress and uncertainty is now outweighing any benefits of these jobs. They also are reporting that when we're asking them sort of what benefits they see from their job, they're holding constant on saying salary is a perk, right? That they think their salaries are fine. So it's not really a compensation measure. But when we ask them things about reputation or status in the community, they are reporting that increasingly they think that they don't have good status or reputation in their community that being a local government official has lost the status in the community of being the local party member and working for the local government, that that is disappearing. And instead, they're being seen more like functionaries. So I guess if you think about seeing somebody as part of a bureaucracy, like somebody who works at Department of Motor Vehicles versus somebody who is at a high-ranking position who has a lot of discretion and authority. So that's the shift they're reporting. I would imagine if I get that, I'm in Zhongnanhai, I'm an advisor to Xi Jinping, I, I'm Wang Huning, for example, I care a lot about governance. I could hear your briefing and I could say, great, in the sense that in reverse order, I'm glad you're not the little Ibasho anymore, right? That, that position you used to hold of great authority was in part because you had wide latitude and power and that was frustrating our ability to drive policy. So sorry, but this is a Leninist system. You're supposed to follow orders all the way down. So great. I'm glad to hear that the kind of outsized prestige that had is dissipated. Second, great. We want to get rid of the people who have basically gotten accustomed to a cushy job. And in the same way, we, the party, are remembering people to, you know, don't forget your original intentions. We're making them now start to pay their dues for party membership. We're doing these things, not just symbolically, but we're trying to basically weed out the bad eggs. Would I be wrong as Wang Huning to sort of hear your brief and not go, oh, damn it, we got a morale problem, but actually to think, good, we're starting to finally turn the corner on ushering out a whole generation you know, we've tightened the restrictions for entrance into the party. So we're trying to really shrink the net rate of growth. Like we're trying to tighten this thing up, weed out the bad actors, reforge the system. So I'm glad to hear Comrade Teets about your briefing. This is good news. Would you interpret it a different way or is, or is that a credible interpretation from the center? I would interpret it differently. And the reason for that is that so much of what makes the system run in China is happening at the local level. So, for example, if there's a policy that's adopted in Beijing, it might work really, really well in Hangzhou, but in Lijiang, it just doesn't make any sense. In the past, when local government officials have received those policies, they've been able to try to figure out in their local context what makes sense for adopting it. Are there parts of it that make sense, or do we need to do it more slowly, or do we really need to push back on the policy altogether? 
increasingly what we're seeing with local government officials is because they don't feel empowered to play that role and they do feel that they're sort of a cog in the machine, that what they're doing is they're simply implementing anything that comes across their desk to the best of their ability in really formulaic ways. Judith Shapiro and Ife Lee have just published a book looking at coercive environmentalism, and they report on some of these instances too. But it's this or one-size-fits-all policy, right? So in my field work, looking at environmental policies in Zhejiang province, we saw the same thing where a directive would come down that says, you can't have pollution over this level by this date. It used to be that local government officials then would go out and they would meet with all of the heads of the different factories and they would come up with a plan. What they do now is they simply shut down all the factories. They don't distinguish between big polluters or small polluters. They don't distinguish between companies that have a lot of jobs or companies that have few jobs. They don't distinguish between companies that are actively polluting and have no intention of changing their practices versus the ones who are actively trying to improve, but this technology and these processes are not going to happen overnight. They take investment, they take time. And so that sort of deliberative governance where you take a policy and you make sure that it's working in intended ways is no longer happening. So that's the part that I worry about in the system that is missing. If you have a whole bunch of bureaucrats who simply say, here's the policy, and I'm just going to you know, pass it off onto the next level of government, they're going to implement it, and we call it a day, you don't have anyone who's paying attention to unintended consequences. You don't have anyone who's trying to feed back into the policy process and say, wait a second, here's a red flag. So there's a difference between bureaucrats who are simply crossing off their list of things that they need to do versus local governance where they're actually engaged in their communities trying to solve problems, trying to make sure that the intention of the policy is also being met. And that's the part that I worry about. That's a good transition to maybe a final question, which is about the kind of implications of the so what. Don gave a speech August 18th, 1980. I've quoted this so much, it's kind of a parlor trick, but I think it's a pretty profound speech for what it says about China's political system. So Dong, we've just gotten over the Cultural Revolution. We've got the history resolution coming out very soon. He's just finally clawed his way to power, but he's looking out over the political system and he's thinking, what are we going to do to really move this ship in the direction of modernity, wealth and power, modernization? And he says, well, there's four problems we've got to overcome. We've got an overconcentration of power at the top. We've got a top leader who's holding too many concurrent posts. I think his quote is, you know, there's only so much energy one man has at any time. We've got to start distinguishing the roles of the party from those of the government and not have the party butt in for the government. And his final one is we've got to solve the succession problem. Feels to me that if we were thinking of kind of four elements or four possible pathologies that have been reintroduced by Xi, it's these. And so I think one of my parting questions is, We've been talking about this, or certainly I do in day-to-day conversation, as a lot of these problems are Xi Jinping problems. Deng's speech, though, gives me pause and makes me think there might be a center of gravity for the Communist Party that really the thing we've got to explain is not Xi or Mao. It's how the heck was it there these three decades where you had some leaders here who were able to hold these forces at bay and really were just kind of seeing a return to over-concentration of power, over-centralization, top-down ideological guidance. So that's kind of a first question. Did the man make the system or the system make the man? And then as a follow-up, 
what's your big so what insofar as how is this going to affect the behavior of the Chinese state, which of course has self-evident implications and knock-on effects and ripple effects and every other cliche for all of us. So why does what we were just talking about of the very localist of local cadre now having a maladjusted incentive structure, how does that affect the performance of this big behemoth Chinese state? Those are two really good questions. They're big questions, so I'll try to do my best. You know, I think that the difference that I do see with Xi Jinping as far as what is he doing that might be slightly different is the idea of professionalizing the bureaucracy. I feel like he's made more steps towards professionalizing the bureaucracy and having a really strong administration than we've seen previously. So reforming the target management system or the performance evaluation system, whichever acronym you want to use. So reforming that system, having quantifiable goals with digital means of monitoring local government, and also making sure that there is some rationalization to the bureaucracy, right? So merging ministries together, trying to deal with some of that fragmentation and overlapping authority. So I do feel that he is trying to do things that haven't been done before. I guess the question is, how successful will he be in overcoming these problems that, as you point out, have been in the system pretty continually? And so I think that's sort of the challenge for him is that that fragmentation is is still in the system and he's professionalizing the bureaucracy, but it's unclear if the ways that he thinks he's professionalizing the bureaucracy will actually solve these problems that he sees or if they will, in fact, create new ones like the ones that I've pointed out. So as far as the big so what of where this will lead, I mean, I think that Partially, these reforms for centralization and to build a stronger bureaucracy are good. I mean, a lot of us have been at the local level where we've had a situation where, you know, somebody sort of haphazardly makes some decision and you think, well, you know, it's probably not the best way to run your country. And I think that having more rules and having more regulations and more, not that you wouldn't have any flexibility, but at least having those laid out and having an understanding that people are going to try to follow certain principles of governance. And as you pointed out, also getting rid of people who just think the government is about them and they make any decision that they want at any time. So I think that those sorts of reforms might actually improve governance in China. The danger is just in veering so far away from discretion that the system is rigid. So whenever we see these really rigid, overly centralized authoritarian regimes, they almost always become more authoritarian and they almost always become worse. So even if we look at just the example of Russia under Putin, Putin pulled back a lot of regional authority from governors and other different parts of Russia and re-centralized governance. But what this has meant is that a lot of localities then are unable to tackle problems that they're facing. So they have to wait for policies to come out of Moscow and then be implemented. So that sort of really rigid authoritarian system, we know it doesn't work, right? We have multiple examples to look at it. And I think that part of China's story, whether you're looking at Andy Nathan or other people who are talking about the durability of the Communist Party and how adaptable it is, has been this idea of how do you have an authoritarian system that still allows for grassroots governance and it still has that flexibility and mechanisms for adaptability. And I would argue that the local governance structure is the source of that. And so this is the balancing act that I think is in front of Xi Jinping, which is 
how do you deal with some of the problems of this system and professionalize the bureaucracy without destroying what makes it so important? And this is where I would worry that if the reforms continue to create this overly rigid authoritarian bureaucracy, you'll see that a lot of people aren't necessarily interested in having a future in the party and that you might start to see more, I don't want to bring it to the level of coup attempts, but you might start to see more factions that are making Xi Jinping feel paranoid or that he has to invest more in internal security in order to understand what different power players across the country are thinking. And that also as citizens find that they no longer have those channels at the local government to talk about policies that are having an unintended impact on them, that increasingly they're going to engage in protest and other sort of tactics that will escalate dissatisfaction. All of those things together point towards a more authoritarian state, one that has to invest a lot more in control of local elites and control of local citizens, which would be a shame for my way of thinking because the mechanisms that we see in the current governance system allow local elites to have discretion and authority and to try to solve problems in their community. It also gives ways for local citizens to talk to those local government officials and see some sort of response. That's a really, some really great insights. And as you were talking, I was just thinking for so much of China's recent past, but especially in the reform and opening period, we sort of outside observers felt like we had a really good idea of the directionality of where China was heading. That confidence in where China was heading collapsed outside of China, but I also think in many ways inside of China. And it seems to me, and this might be a bit hyperbolic, I think all of us, including many citizens in China, just don't really know what the country is going to look like in 10 years. I think that's probably more pronounced for those of us who look at Chinese politics and try to think about I just did a podcast with Barry Naughton, and he was talking about the big bet that Xi Jinping is placing on. You mentioned a big bet. Can you combine red and expert rather than having them being tension? Barry was talking about the big bet of we, we're going to make huge investments in some of these core technologies and hope they're going to give us the productivity boost we need to jump over the middle income trap to you know really start driving productivity gains to sustain growth for the coming decades. I think we're all making a big bet on absent now codified leadership succession procedures. And with the norms now evaporated, we've just here in the United States, as of this recording a week ago, we've seen that there's some succession issues here in the United States. Power transfers are always difficult affairs, certainly though, in systems where you don't have a whole lot of codification and a black box about how leaders are chosen. So it seems like we've just got a series of big bets on China's future. And a final thought, I would imagine, despite the confidence Xi Jinping has, I don't think his crystal ball about something so complex and multifaceted and also dynamic and nested in a changing global order, I don't, I bet Xi Jinping isn't as confident on the inside as he appears. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of summing up a really fascinating discussion. And also just your work has been hugely influential to help me think through how the system operates, where the tensions are building also help to turn the temperature down on times when I think like, oh my God, this um, everything is different and Xi Jinping has turned this into a, a one-man state. Your work has been helpful to think about some of the complex realities in China's system. So thank you very much for generosity with your time and for your fantastic scholarship. I really appreciated having this discussion because I think that what it shows is there's never been a better time to study China. So much is happening, so much is changing, and we really need people to study all different parts about what's happening in China 
especially at the local level. So to have this sort of data and people doing field work and reporting in all this evidence that they're seeing about what is changing, what is staying the same, it's never been more important. And I think that, you know, anything we can do to encourage people to study these issues will be great. I was going to say, for anyone who's in high school, study, get a 4.0 so you can get into Middlebury, so you can study with Professor Teets to study these fascinating issues. So anyway, thank you very much, Jessica. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 